uh, we are hopping back in uh, to the book of Romans today. If you've been around here at Calvary, you know that we have been kind of working our way through Romans, taking some breaks over different times, holiday season, summertime, special, t- special uh, one-offs that we might have. But we've kind of been working our way through Romans, and we find ourselves at chapter 12. Chapter 12 begins in the paraphrase that Eugene Peterson did, known as the, the message. It begins in verse 1 by saying, so here's what I want you to do, God helping you. So this is like a transitionary sort of um, uh, sentence that Paul is offering to those ancient believers where he's going to get real practical with them. And as Peterson put it, again in his paraphrase, here's what I want you to do. And what he wants them to do, I'm going to say, is basically live a life of surrender. That's what this passage that we're looking at today, it's only going to be two verses that we're looking at, Romans 12, 1 and 2. But this passage from Paul is going to basically be all about what it means to live the surrendered life. This is a theme that you've heard from us before in our teaching here at Calvary, this idea of the life well lived is the life that is surrendered to God. And there's that constant struggle. We're going to look look at that even today. There's that constant struggle. There's that constant pull. There's that constant battle of am I going to continue to maintain, maintain control of my life or am I going to give it up to God so that he can give it back to me and it becomes the life that I could have never dreamed that I would have ever had. That's the irony of it. The longer we hold on to our life, the less likely we are ever to be to live the life that God has for us. But the moment we surrender it over to him, When we give up and we allow ourselves to receive from God the life that he has for us, the power that he has for us, the purpose that he has for us, it's the abundant life. It's the full life. It is literally your best life now. (laughs) But as long as you hold on to that, you'll never experience it. But God has one for you. And it is the life that's the surrendered life. So with that being said, Would you look at those two verses with me? You can pull them up on your device, look them on the back of your notes there in your own Bible. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible Translation. I'm going to read those two verses, and then we'll pray and jump off right there looking at what Paul has to say about surrendering our lives to him. To God, that is. Romans 12.1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the gift of the letter that Paul wrote to those Roman believers to encourage them in their faith. It's so rich and powerful and thick and deep. We thank you for the opportunity to, as a community, to be able to have have been studying it for these last couple of years. And as we jump back in in Romans 12, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. We pray, God, that you would help us to see the truth that that you desire for us to, to receive. And not just in our minds, Lord, but in our wills. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to, at the end of this time, be closer to or at that place where we are surrendering our life completely and totally wholly over to you. We pray all of these things according to the name and the 
and the will of, of God and in, in, in Jesus, Lord, uh, spirit of, of, of surrender, we pray these things. Amen. This thing that Paul writes to the Roman believers beginning there in verse 1, is something that I would suggest to you is an impassioned plea. As one uh, commentator puts it, the use of the word parakaleo is probably an allusion to Paul basically mixing an entreaty and, and, uh, and a, a really an urge and a plea as well as the authority to do just that. You can see there's some other words as I, as I, as I list them there in your notes that could possibly be uh, used in English translations the one that is in ours is, I urge you. Of course, that's what the, the translation says as we see it. It could be, I ask you, I beseech you, I exhort you, I plead with you, I appeal to you, I beg you. And so there's a passion here. I don't want you to, to see this as, as kind of a casual ask, but this is an impassioned plea from Paul to the, the community of faith there. And so in that, in that passionate plea that he offers to them, he says, as you remember in verse 1, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, and so in this, in this introduction that he has here in this verse 1, he's going to basically say, these are the people to whom I am giving this plea, this, this impassioned plea, this urge, this ask, this exhortation, and it is on these grounds that I'm giving these plea. And so the first question is, to whom is he giving these plea, this plea? Well, it's all the family of God. One commentator says it is likely very deliberate that Paul chooses the word brothers. In the translation that we have, it, it makes it inclusive in gender, brothers and sisters. And as Paul is addressing the brothers, he is meaning to address the entire family of God. Earlier in his letter, Paul had been dealing with Jewish-Gentile tension in the Roman church. In chapters 9 through 11, the roles of Israel and the nations are much in view in, as, as we're seeing the unfolding of the historical plan of God. Paul will return to that theme again in chapters 14 and 15, but now at this moment in his letter, all the distinctions that exist fade into the, into the background. All believers, irrespective of any differences they might have in ethnicity or education, race or background of any sort, all those di differences are, are, are gone. And the brothers and sisters who exist in the international family of God are all receiving precisely the same calling that he is about to describe. So when Paul is giving this, this, this plea to the brothers and sisters in Rome, uh, we can be sure that it is the same plea that he would give to us if he was standing before us here today. Irrespective of anything that might, that, that we might, that might divide us or any way in which we might have differences, Paul is giving a universal, an international, a holistic and comprehensive calling to all the family of God. And so we need to listen. Now, on what ground? So if, it's, if the plea is made to all the family of God, all of the brothers and sisters, on what grounds is he offering it? Well, he's offering it on the grounds of God's mercies. In the original language, it is plural, not mercy, but mercies. And that's a Hebraism for the many and varied manifestations of God's mercies. For 11 chapters, Paul has been unfolding it. That is, these great mercies of God. He's been describing it. He's been emphasizing it. It is the core of the gospel, correct? 
In fact, in chapters 9 through 11, the key, ver- key word of those chapters 9 through 11 is the word mercy. Maybe the verse that sums it up very succinctly and plainly is verse 16 of chapter 9 where Paul writes to them and says, It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. End of discussion. It's all based on God's mercy. And so Paul, as he's appealing to them, is appealing to them on the basis of God's mercy. One commentator said it this way. There is no greater incentive to a life surrendered, that is the holy life, than a genuine and thorough contemplation of the mercies of God. There is no greater incentive to a life surrendered, to this holy life, than we who have a thorough and deep and meaningful contemplation of how merciful God has been to us. It's no accident, it's been suggested, that the word charis, is the root word for the word grace in scripture, as well as the word gratitude. God's grace doesn't encourage sin. It is a springboard, it is a foundation, one commentator says, of the righteous and surrendered life. God's grace leads to gratitude. So again, this, and when Paul says this, when he's gonna make this plea, it's not again about anything we're doing that's somehow paying God back for what he's done for us. It's just in full realization of all that God has done for us, what does he deserve? All of me, all of me. It's not in terms of paying his back, paying him back, but it's a loving decision. It's a loving act of obedience. It's a response of love to his great love. It's a a gracious response to his incredible grace. It's us recognizing the depth of his mercy and hearing then this call that he has on our lives. This call has two facets. So if you're taking notes, you can jot that down. It has two facets. The first facet is found in the presentation of our bodies. Paul says it this way. I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Some commentators have suggested that this was a very calculated thing that Paul did, and it was calculated to do this, to shock some of Paul's Greek readers. You see, many of these readers that would have been living in, these Christians and these readers of this letter that would have been living in Rome at that time would have been steeped in Platonic thought. Plato, the great philosopher. They saw the body as an embarrassing encumbrance. In fact, there was a slogan that existed in that day. I'm not gonna try, uh, not gonna give it to you in Greek because it would mean nothing, but the, the, the phrase is, the body is a tomb. The body was not seen as something that was positive. And so when Paul is mentioning here that, that, that they're to present their bodies as a living sacrifice, it would have shocked them. It would have been like, wait a second, the body is a tomb. The body is an encumbrance. The body is evil. There's nothing good about my body. And so how am I supposed to offer my body as a living sacrifice? In fact, some contemporary Christian commentators, not ancient philosophers, but some contemporary Christian commentators offer a variant understanding of this. In some of your translations, you might even see in English the, the, the instead of saying offer your bodies, offer our very selves. Because some commentators would see that as, you know, God's calling us to offer ourself to him, not necessarily our literal physical bodies to him. But this is the, this is the thing. 
The thing here is, and, and notice if you will, that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice which are holy, holy and pleasing to God. It is, it is a paradox to us, but it is real. God is asking for us to commit our entire beings uh, uh, to him, but that is inclusive of our bodies. I thought that John Stott had some good uh, insight into this when he, said, when he said this about this particular aspect of what is Paul trying to emphasize here. He says, Christian sanctity or holiness shows itself in the deeds of the body. So we are to offer the different parts of our body not to sin as instruments of wickedness, but to God as instruments of righteousness. And then listen to what he says. And this is what happens, how this, is, this becomes something where our bodies are being presented to God. He says, then our feet will walk in his paths. Our lips will speak the truth and spread the gospel. Our tongues will bring healing. Our hands will lift up those who have fallen and perform many mundane tasks like cooking and cleaning and data entry and mending. Our arms will embrace the lonely and the unloved. Our ears will listen to the cries of the distressed and our eyes will look humbly and patiently towards God. Our bodies become a living sacrifice. Now there are only two things in scripture that are two people that have really been offered as living that ultimately became living sacrifices the first was Isaac the son of, of of Abraham where he was offered by Abraham up to God but he was a living sacrifice and though that he was about to be sacrificed he was spared from that because God used that as a test against his uh, father and so he was spared. The other living sacrifice, of course, is the person of Jesus, who, though he was killed, was then raised to new life. Now, not Isaac, not Jesus, but we are called to be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, as we see, yes, our entire beings, but literally, the acts of our body become things that are worshipful to God. It becomes our holy and pleasing spiritual worship, right? Think of that. Oftentimes, as it relates to, to worship, we think about something that's inward, th something that's mystical, something that's spiritual, something that's abstract. But God is emphasizing here in the fact that our worship is, is connected to our bodies, that worship is something that is very concrete. Worship happens when we're at work. Worship, worship happens when we're playing with our kids. Worship happens in our entire lives because everything we do, yes, even with our bodies, when we're working, when we're serving, when we're cleaning, when we're cooking, all that we're doing becomes an act of worship. This is our spiritual act of worship so that we see, not like the Greek, ancient Greeks did, our body is a tomb, but as an instrument of righteousness. I can serve him with these hands. I can serve him with these eyes. Now, can I... Can I not serve him with those very th same things? Absolutely. That's why this is about the surrendered life. So that I see my body not as a tomb, not as an encumbrance, but as a tool to bring worship and glory to the one true king. Not just in meditative prayer. Not just in contemplative thought. Not just in singing a worship song. Not just in reading scripture, but in everything I do, even the physical acts of my body. That's the surrendered life. So that first facet is a very concrete presentation of our bodies, which is equivalent to, according to Paul, our spiritual, ironically, 
in a paradoxical way. Our spiritual act of worship, think of that. I don't think he chose bodies accidentally, right? Our bodies, physical bodies, become a spiritual act of worship, all to the glory of God. Paul then goes on and continues in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so the second facet, of course, simply the transformation as it relates to our minds. Paul's call to nonconformity, Paul's call to holiness, is expressed all throughout Scripture. Remember that surrounded by the false devotion of the Pharisees and the pagans, Jesus said to his disciples what? Do not be like them, right? Whether it was the pagans or the Pharisees, he said, don't be like them. Each of, their, each of what they're embracing, their philosophy of life, their, their devotion, it will not lead to life. And so he, Jesus says, don't be like them. And that, that thought is expressed all throughout Scripture. Paul then says to them, do not, be, do not be conforming to this world, but be transformed. Both of those uh, encouragements there are something known as, the, as a present passive imperative. In other words, it is to be a continuing attitude. It could be translated this way. It would be a little more clunky, but it would be go on continuing to refuse to conform and go on letting yourselves be transformed. It's not a one and done kind of thing. It's something we daily over and over and over. That's that present passive imperative where we are called to continually surrender, continually not conform, continually be transformed. That word transformed is the word metamorpho. It's only used a few times in scripture. The two times it's used in the gospels, it refers to the transfiguration of Jesus when he was transfigured on the, on the mount uh, when Peter was there. And of course, he had a couple of other guys from the, from the Old Testament that were, there, were there with him. Paul uses it then twice in the New Testament other than those two references in the Gospels in this verse and in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And what he's emphasizing here, he's emphasizing the change for the people of God and here's, here's what it is. Change for the people of God, for the follower of Jesus is a fundamental transformation of his or her character and conduct away from the standards of the world and into the image of Jesus himself. Paul says, as you do not conform, but allow the transformation of your mind to take place, you will then be able to what? To discern what is the will of God for your life, the good, perfect, pleasing will of God. Why is this transformation so necessary? Because it's always, like I said at the very beginning, it's always going to be something that is a battle. The two value systems this world and God's will are incompatible, guys. They are even in direct collision with one another. That same commentator that I quoted earlier, John Stott, says this, whether we are, to, whether we are thinking about the purpose of, of life or the meaning of life, about how to measure greatness or how to respond to evil, about ambition, sex, honesty, money, community, religion, or anything else, the two sets of standards, the world standard and God's will, are so completely divergent that there is no possibility of combination or compromise. That's the point that Paul is trying to make. Stott said it well. 
There's no possibility that we can take, well, a little bit of the work, just a little bit of the world. Remember the words of Jesus, very simply, do not be like them. The words of Paul, do not be conformed. Guys, the world, that's that, again, that's that constant tug on our lives. The way we see success, the way we see some ambition, the way we handle our money, the way we see people of the opposite sex, the way we see people who have a different skin color than us. There's always the world's way of doing it, and then there's God's will for us. And the longer that we allow ourselves to dip our toe or our ankle or all the way to our knee or our entire body into the pool of the way the world does stuff, we'll never be able to enjoy the incredible, great, abundant, full, free life of the follower of Jesus. Do not be conformed to the world. Can, what, 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 what's the best translation of it? Go on today and tomorrow and Thursday, and next week, and next month, and in 2021, and in 2038. Go on con- refusing to conform to what the world wants you to become and continue to let yourself be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will be able to live according to God's will. And if you are continuing to, uh, to resist that confirmation and embrace the transformation, if you are one who is presenting your body up to God as your spiritual act of worship, that is, folks, simply the surrendered life. Your body surrendered over to him, your, your mind being transformed so that you don't conform to the ways of the world, that's the way of the transformed life. That's why when we think of worship, when we think of discipleship, the, one of the greatest images that we can have in our mind is surrender, is being face down before God that he is Lord, yielding all that we are to him. I understand the struggle. I know how our sin nature and how the elemental principles of this world pull so hard against the way of Jesus. But here's what God has given us. He has given us, according to scripture, the power of the Holy Spirit. He has given us the truth of his word. He has given us the great gift of community, the church of Jesus Christ, the family of God. And by his mercy, as we have that mercy in view, not just what he has done for us historically, but what he is doing for us right now, filling us with his Holy Spirit, gifting us with his word, blessing us with the family of God, we can live the surrendered life. It is probably the path that's less chosen. It is the way of living that's a little bit more rare. But I would invite you in the same way that Paul did with an impassioned plea, urge, ask, entreat, exhort, maybe even beg you, in view of the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. and to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but by God's will be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that we can live according to his will, which is for us to live that surrendered life. This morning, as we wrap up our service, we're gonna be participating in receiving communion together as a family. If you're a server today, you guys can go ahead and make your way to the back and and prepare to to pass those plates. Just a reminder, 
You don't have to be a member of, of Calvary. You don't have to be a member of any church. If you've received Jesus as Savior, you're more than welcome to participate. And you're invited, encouraged to participate in communion this morning. There'll be a tray that passes in front of you. It's got a piece of bread and a cup of juice in it. You can take one of each and hold on to both of them until we've all been served. Then I'll come back up and we'll eat and drink together. And I'd like for you to just this morning as you hold those two things in your hand this morning and you think about the incredible gift of Jesus, of gift of him in the flesh, the gift of his shed blood which brings us life. I'd like for you to, it, it to be something that again reminds you of the mercies of God, the incredible mercies of God. And in light and in view of the way Paul says it today, in view of those mercies, that you would just meditate and contemplate that calling that he has in these two verses for us, that calling of presentation and that calling of transformation. I'm going to pray, and then guys, when I'm done praying, you guys can go ahead and start uh, passing those plates, and then I'll see you up, back up here in a minute as we eat and drink together. Father God, thank you for the gift of your mercy, your comprehensive, transformational mercy. And I pray, God, that as we hold these simple reminders in our hands today, that these two elements would more than just be a reminder that they would be a call, a clarion call in our lives toward the kind of life that Paul was urging those Roman believers to live. We know that's your desire for us as well, God. So bless this time of worship and meditation. May you use it to change us more and more into the image of Jesus and less into the image of what our world would want us to be.